Have you heard the term psychological safety being thrown around lately? We're here to tell you why it's not just a buzzword, but a fundamental necessity in today's professional landscape, one that is often misunderstood. Hi, lab mates. Welcome to the Social Learning Lab, a podcast about social learning at work. In today's episode, we learn from an actual clinical psychologist about psychological safety, including the meaning, origin, and real-world applications. So grab your lab goggles as we explore the science of its absence and most importantly, actionable strategies to cultivate a truly psychologically safe workplace. So we are here today with Lyle Laberty, MS, LPC, owner and founder of Amplified Life Media, the leading supplier of streaming custom branded well-being media to EAPs, employers, and other organizations throughout the U.S., Amplified Life's Netflix-like media portal makes it easy for employee assistance providers, and that's those EAPs, to access custom-branded well-being media and distribute it to their employers and um, their employees. So Amplified Life's content is currently distributed to nearly 300,000 employees nationally. And that's not all. Uh, Lyle is also the founder of the Crisis Care Network, the EAP industry's first 911-like nationwide system of critical incident response providers, many of whom continue to serve under the organization that acquired CCN R3 Continuum. So today we're talking about psychological safety. And when we knew that this was the topic, we knew we had to talk to Lyle. Um, He has such an incredible background in understanding psychological safety, applying it, making sure people at work are in a good headspace, um, that they are well. And so, you know, Lyle, we're so grateful that you could be here with us today because we just know there's so much to be learned from you. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me to be here today, Nicole and Garcia, and uh, looking forward to sharing what I can here. Sure, sure. So let's start at the beginning then. Um, You know, we talk a lot about psychological safety in the learning and development field and the HR field and the talent Mm -hmm. field in general. What does that mean, really? Sure. Uh, Well, the name kind of speaks for itself, psychological safety. I think a lot of people can naturally imagine or relate to it, or maybe another way of looking at it is that uh, most people kind of know when it doesn't feel psychologically safe for them. Uh, in other words, they they are already uh, aware of their own sense of nervousness and in particular interactions with uh, people whom they might be communicating with, you know, at home or in the workplace or just out and about in the world around them. So to bring it down to a real simple concept here, it's really a shared belief that the environment is safe for interpersonal risk taking. In other words, that people would feel uh, included. Uh, accepted, um, not not be afraid to ask or learn or engage or offer ideas and get feedback. So in other words, to sort of bring their whole self into whatever environment they might be in without too much concern about how whatever it is they have to offer would be received. I will add that it's not about creating an environment that is simply applauding everything a person does or giving people particularly in a workplace you know permission to whine or you know just sort of bring all their feelings and fully express themselves and their feelings so i think it helps to uh perceive the the balance that comes with psychological safety so yes it's an environment where people feel relaxed and comfortable to 
communicate and express themselves and ask questions and not be afraid to uh, offer opinions uh, and maybe even challenge leadership. And on the other hand, it's not really a place where people would just, you know, kind of come in and have uh, the freedom to just say and do whatever they want, because that's the other side of psychological safety. A leader needs to make sure that that others and the input that others are providing is not impacting negatively the positive and helpful impact that many of the, the others might offer. We've definitely seen a number of those cases in the news lately. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, where does this concept come from? I mean, sure. yeah, we'll just we'll just start with the easy stuff. So yeah. where does it come from? Yeah, that's such a great question. And as is the case so often with so much in the way of human development, uh, while it a term might be associated with one particular individual at this point in time, as we all know, there are so many that have gone before that have who have contributed to that, right? So these days, Dr. Amy Edmondson out of Harvard really is uh, has emerged as a leader in the area of psychological safety, and she has produced a lot of content and great videos and books on on the subject. First, writing about it, I believe, in about uh, 1999, the late 90s, and uh, yet at the same time, you know, I think our work in this area collectively kind of goes back to maybe even Abraham Maslow, and everybody's familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He was a psychologist in the 50s who wrote about, you know, the importance of the basic needs being met before we could fully engage in higher level needs. In other words, you know, like we all have basic needs for food and water, and then secondarily to that, maybe a sense of security and safety and Beyond that, then we can really begin to engage in love and, and belonging, and that's where we begin to develop a sense of self-esteem. And it's really not until all of those needs are met that we're really prepared psychologically and personally to begin to bring our whole self, to begin to think in terms of a vision and values and uh, creativity and, in other words, self-actualization, which is really kind of at the top of the pyramid. And if you think about what uh, what Dr. Amy Edmondson's talking about today in psychological safety, we can see a reflection of Maslow's hierarchy in that. In other words, in order for people to bring their them, their full self to the workplace, these basic needs need to be met. Others who have contributed to that along the way would, of course, include Carl Rogers, who also talked about psychological safety and the importance of the therapist-client relationship. And one of the most important things any therapist can do for a client is to create a sense of safety and shared connection where the client feels free to be who they are and share themselves fully and uh, knows that and believes that the, the therapist will respond in an unconditional way, that sort of unconditional positive regard. That's all part of it. And others who've contributed along the way include people like Robert Greenleaf, who in the 70s wrote about servant leadership, which is about really committing to um, the individual wholeheartedly and being an advocate for them and believing them. And it's kind of interesting that we even see that played out in professional sports, where oftentimes you'll hear from really top performers and players about what a difference it made for them when they're coach conveyed to them that they believed in them and had confidence them in them and their ability to perform 
So again, there are threads of this throughout. Edward Deming talked about this in the 80s with total quality management. And of course, Dan Goleman in the 90s talked about uh, emotional intelligence and how important that is. And uh, John Townsend, another organizational leader, wrote the book Leadership Beyond Reason. You know, these writers and these thinkers are really contributed to in large ways to the notion of psychological safety and really all have a lot to con- lot to contribute and add to the topic. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because I you're naming, you know, ways it's sort of been reimagined in the leadership space. And I'm also thinking of, you know, we have a a mental performance coach who works with young athletes. And so, you know, right. I'm, I'm seeing the trend there and we have, um, there's a lot of research and education that kind of says what you say about the coaching, you know, your, your teacher's perspective of you and how they facilitate that relationship is incredibly impactful right. on your experience. Um, yeah. So that kind of leads me to think, you know, we hear it a lot now because, it, it, you know, mm-hmm. Rocio and I were very much attached to the learning and development, HR, workplace space. And um, so that psychological safety has just been everywhere, I would say, since 2020. I can't imagine why. But really, like, why do you think it has become, I don't want to say buzzword, because it is way too important to be a buzzword. But why is it so much part of the overall kind of like collective consciousness right now? I think workplace leaders are seeing just unprecedented levels of workforce burnout and attrition right now and and productivity dropping off as a result of that. McKinsey and uh, company consultants reported in 2022 that, you know, toxic workplace behavior, that is that sense of feeling unsafe and undervalued in the workplace is is the biggest driver of burnout and intent to leave that, which essentially drives attrition, this movement of uh, top talent out of the workforce. It's often said that you know workers are not quitting a job, they're quitting a, a boss or a relationship. And I think that uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, organizations are under increased pressure to leverage technology to increase productivity and performance. And on the other hand, they're grappling with this sort of disconnection with the staff, with the workforce. Um, and I think that's a, a part of it. I don't think that explains all of it. I think it has to do with, you know, in part, how technology is impacting the workplace. I think just in terms of the um, post-pandemic prevalence of hybrid meetings and the workspace and the use of Zoom and, you know, other uh, virtual places to connect rather than in person in the office. So in other words, we have a workforce that's now increasingly separated from one another uh, that is in many cases dealing with a 24-7 always on expectation in terms of answering email and responding to requests. And you know, at the same time, has less opportunity to really be engaged in a way that facilitates their connection with their fellow workers in a way that is relaxing and creative and positive. There's there's a lot of emphasis on productivity. There's a lot of emphasis on availability and not so much um, accommodation for them with respect to helping them uh, just simply kind of relax and be creative. So I think that I think that work 
workforces in general are under tremendous pressure. I think that workplace leaders are aware that people are extremely stressed. And I think that uh, workplace leaders are really increasingly looking for ways to address what they're now seeing and recognizes, recognizing as the mental health needs of the workers in the workplace. Uh, probably for the first time ever, there is a, a huge awareness of the importance of addressing the mental health needs. And while that's true, I think there's a lot of question right now about how to best do that because there are organizational strategies such as implementing and developing a culture of psychological safety. And then there are the sort of individual interventions for the individuals who are experiencing the distress. And I think both have to happen kind of at the same time. In other words, you know, the individuals who are experiencing kind of an overload of stress and disconnection and emotional dysregulation, which we can talk about a little bit further here, uh, you know, are, are still needing individual services and support to help them with that. Uh, and at the same time, I think organizations need to also figure out how to lead those conversations, how to lead the process, how to cultivate a culture where people who are experiencing some distress can um, find that it's a safe place to kind of be who they are um, and and uh, participate in a culture that will, if done right, actually help them uh, feel more relaxed, be more productive, and learn how to regulate their own emotions a little better. But I think both have to happen at the same time, both the individual and the organizational efforts. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot in what you said, Lyle. So I think I'm hearing a few things. One is this this need right for the organization and the individual, and they they both have to be thinking about psychological yeah. safety. And then I think you started to get at it, but like, what what is the end result of? Because it's people tend to think it's this big investment, and maybe it isn't. And we can talk about some of those things a little bit later. But you know, what what's kind of in business sense, the return on investment in thinking about making sure your people feel psychologically, feel psychological safety um, and that your organization is structured to ensure that that is something you preserve or support. Right, sure. Uh, well, I think that clearly um, productivity, bottom line, is going to improve. I'm kind of reminded of um, those who study organizational psychology will be familiar with what's referred to as the Yerkes-Dodson law. Uh, so if you can imagine what that would look like is a bell curve, maybe an upside down bell curve for that matter, with performance being on one axis and stress being on the other. And the, the, the long and short of it is that um, uh, as uh, stress increases for workers, that is the demand on them for their abilities and their resources and what they've been trained to do, as that increases, their performance rises to a certain point where it's optimized. In other words, my abilities are aligned with what's being expected of me and maximized. And at that point, I'm going to be most productive for the organization. What happens if at that point, the stressors upon me, my the, the level of stress that I perceive in my environment actually begins to exceed 
my ability, what happens to my performance? It starts dropping. So it's sort of like, you know, as, as the demands on my capabilities increase commensurate with what I'm able to do, I'm going to feel activated, energized, and productive. So the Yerkes-Dodson law would say. However, <laughs> you know, once those stressors begin to eclipse my own capabilities, my performance begins to drop off. That's the backside of the curve. And what we're finding in the workplace today, as you can imagine, is that the stressors are taking people over the top of that curve, coming back down the other side. They're beginning to disengage, disconnect, and feel as though they can't. So to the extent that an organization is able to recognize when that's happening, to be able to provide individual support for those who are experiencing that, to provide more of an organizational approach to that, um, we can begin to mitigate the impact of that excess stress. I think it also helps to look at, um, you know, the factors that are driving this. So while the organizations and workplaces out there are charged with figuring out how to mitigate the impact of stress and to implement programs like psychological safety and perhaps EAP programs and other resources to help individuals and leaders sort of deal with this stress in a, in a productive kind of way. I think part of that involves understanding what's going on in the world around us that is actually contributing to the distress that the workers are bringing into the workplace, right? So, you know, I, I just want to identify a few things here, and this could be a long list, but, you know, just give you a kind of, and the, and the listeners, a bit of a perspective on, at least from uh, this therapist's perspective anyway, as to, you know, what we're hearing, what we're seeing, what we're seeing in our practice in terms of what people are coming in with. And I can tell you that we're seeing an unprecedented demand for clinical therapy uh, amongst people of all ages and backgrounds, huge demand for support for kids and for adolescents and for parents who don't even really know quite where to begin with uh, adolescents who are really, I think, reflecting in a lot of ways the stress of our entire culture. Um, and that's being expressed in lots of different ways, and much of which includes self-harm, suicidal ideation, and all kinds of questions about life in general. So what's happening in the world around us that's sort of driving the need for workplace leaders to uh, implement approaches like psychological safety to create a safe place for workers to come and rest and, and perform? So here are a few things. I think, you know, for starters, just the culture, cultural and generational shifts in how we approach work and productivity, if we think about it, over the last, oh, I don't know, maybe now almost 70 years, you know, we've kind of progressed from sort of this uh, uh, almost militaristic top-down command and control kind of way of doing things, you know, stuff your emotions, here's what you need to do, you know, suck it up, get it done, make it happen, you know, not touting that as like where we wanna be or go, but it's kind of where, some of us came from in terms of what we learned early on in life and people sort of carried that and it served them to a point. I mean, it's effective in terms of say operations, whether that be engineering or manufacturing or even military, 
On the other hand, uh, there are lots of things that are left out of that equation. And I think if we kind of map that over time, we find that we, from a cultural perspective, entered an era where uh, there was a very much a lessening of that kind of uh, approach. And there was more emphasis on, you know, kind of allowing people to kind of be where they are. Let's sort of celebrate feelings and emotions. Let's, you know, it's it's not about awarding, you know, the the person who performs the best, but rather recognizing everybody. <laughs> so everybody got a trophy, you know, and, and there was a real overemphasis for some time on feelings. And we, we hear a lot about that and we see a lot about that, you know, how you feel, you know, express yourself and and all of that. And I really appreciate what John Townsend, an organizational psychologist, wrote about in his book, Leadership Beyond Reason, and that very, very helpful point that he makes, which we use with our, our clients and those we consult to all the time. And that is that, look, emotions are, are really just signals. Uh, they're not meant to drive us. They're meant to be like the indicator light on our dashboard. They're not, you know, emotions aren't meant to be the driver of the vehicle. We're the driver of the vehicle. We need to look at our dashboard and if there's a light on, in other words, a strong feeling that I have, great. That's a good indication of something that I need to perhaps pay attention to or look at. It's an indicator that something's not right, either in a personal relationship or, or a work relationship. And so, it doesn't mean that I should shout it from the mountaintop, uh, but it does mean I should pause and take a look and ask myself, what is that about? And where is that coming from? And what does that tell me about my engine? Is it time to pull over? Is it time to have a conversation? Is it time to maybe check my bank account? Is it a time to maybe curb my spending? Is it a time for me to maybe have that difficult conversation with my supervisor? So. A very important distinction, and that is to say that feelings and emotions are really important. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should just be expressing them and kind of going wherever we think they're kind of indicating we should go. It really is an indicator for us to stop and pause and reflect and engage and then make a good decision about what to do next. So there's this a little bit of confusion out there about uh, of these emotions that we're having and you know what we're to do with them. And I think there are other factors that contribute to this sort of rampant expression of emotions in the middle of the town square that we're kind of reading about and seeing about a lot, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it that's happening that's driving stress in the workplace is this technology-driven sort of 24-7 exposure to a global community of news and associated socio-political relational stressors that produces this overwhelming global exposure to personal stress. You know, in years past, it was my community. It was where I lived and worked and the grocery store I went to and the job that I went to and the people there, and maybe the church that I went to, my faith community. And I knew those people, I had relationships with them, and sure there were ups and downs, but you know, it was pretty well defined. Today, we're living in kind of a 24 seven global community, and we're all trying to process that internally and personally. And I think we unwittingly find that we're being exposed to just high levels of stress that we're not really prepared to process. 
and we don't even really understand what's involved in processing stress. We just expose ourselves to it, and then we what? Mostly in Western culture, self-medicate, fill in the blank, gambling, addictions, drugs, alcohol, to feel better. So I think that it helps to just maybe offer a few um, bits of information and ideas around how it is that we as human beings process stress, because I think that it's very important for leaders in the workplace to also understand this because it will have um, a, an effect on their ability to regulate themselves emotionally and secondarily create a culture then that enables other people to also self-regulate. So early on in our podcast today, I talked about two things, uh, two factors. One, what's happening for the individual, and secondly, you know, what's happening organizationally. And I think leaders in the workplace today need to be aware of both. So yes, there are things we can do to create a climate where psychological safety is experienced. And in order to do that, part of it is to understand the nature of emotional regulation and dysregulation. So uh, if a person's exposed to a lot of stress over a long period of time, their autonomic nervous system, which sort of works, if you will, kind of like our own sort of personal heating and cooling system, HVAC system, you know, uh, our autonomic nervous system regulates our, our body to uh, work in such a way where our sense of safety and comfort is optimized. So just think in terms of being in your house. What do you want? You don't want the temperature to be too cold. You don't want it to be too hot. You want it to be comfortable, whatever that might be, 68, 71, depends on the thermostat. But we know what it is because it feels good and it feels comfortable. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. And that's really how our autonomic nervous system works with regards to our own emotions and our stress response. <clears throat> if uh, we're experiencing any kind of threat in our environment whatsoever, real or perceived, you know, the system kicks on, and that means that our limbic system is activated and our higher cortical thinking around, you know, uh, how we think more broadly and abstractly and creatively and how we, you know, kind of relax and think about a vision and higher level strategic thinking, that all shuts down when we perceive stress in our environment. Our brain is like, nope, we're, you know, Let's get back to food, water, safety, and security. And that, and that limbic system kicks in, and we're into that fight, flight, freeze mode to protect ourselves, but it's at the expense of that higher level thinking, right? And so uh, it will kick in when, when we perceive there to be a threat or a stressor in the environment. Until that threat or stressor is abated, we're on edge. Once we resolve that, hey, that's not going to be a problem for me. You know, like I thought I might be overdrawn. I was pretty nervous and upset about that. I checked my bank account. Whew, it's okay, right? I mean, everybody can kind of relate to that experience, right? You know, you might not be sharing that yes. with everybody, but if that was your experience, you know, your that's a little mini example of, you know, that state of concern find out, address the concern, now I can relax. So what happens when people are exposed to that and other kinds of stressors, personal or real, for a sustained period of time 
over and over and over and over again, almost 24 seven on and on. Well, what happens is that part of the nervous system that kicks in to activate our fight, flight, freeze system stays activated. And that involves the high production of cortisol, which activates all of our fight, flight, freeze activity and our uh, adrenal glands to the point where uh, we are overactivated. And as with any kind of system that's overactivated, at some point it begins to become less effective and less efficient. Okay. And when that happens, uh, we end up having more difficulty moving back and forth between a relaxed state and an active state. In fact, we're kind of in an activated state all of the time. And when somebody says something or does something that reminds us of a situation that uh, was a situation that sort of activated us, then we're inclined to actually uh, reactivate uh, physiologically, you know, be tense, be nervous, etc. So there, over time, then that person is really not actually getting to that comfort state very often. And it's in that state of, and, and sort of what happens in the comfort state when we're in a relaxed state and we're connecting with other people and we're feeling more comfortable, uh, we know that that's where uh, instead of cortisol being produced, we're going to experience more uh, oxytocin being produced, which is sort of thought of as a hormone that's connected with that sense of connection and uh, affection and belonging and uh, connection with people around us. It's comforting, it's relaxing, it's restful, and that serves that purpose. So you can see how these things kind of work together. If I'm in a overstressed state and uh, my, you know, uh, cortisol is at an all-time high uh, and I'm on edge all of the time and I don't really know what to do about it and in fact instead of doing something that helps me mitigate the impact of that I lean on those things that actually um, just take the edge off for a little while it could be you know uh, you know stress shopping it could be substance abuse it could be gambling fill in the blank these kinds of things might give us a little bit of a break so our brain thinks for just a little while but actually creates more stress and keeps us in that loop and in that cycle and that's what people are frankly kind of showing up with in the workplace and this is why i say it's so important that we all kind of understand how our body responds to stress how that cycle can begin and to recognize that uh, in order to experience a greater state of relaxation I have to learn about and find ways to identify that happening in myself and understand how I can actually reset my system so that I can actually relax a little bit more, experience more uh, oxytocin and a connection with other people and things that matter to me and begin to get a little bit more uh, balance you know, in that. So back to, again, what is it that a leader can do within an organizational setting? It's to first and foremost, in my opinion, understand themselves from a uh, neurobiological point of view with respect to how they manage stress in their own life and understand that system between being activated and not activated, 
uh, how to recognize that feelings are important, but that doesn't mean that we should act on them, but nor does it mean that we should suppress them. We should be aware of them and pay attention to what those feelings might be signaling. And then we should look for ways to make connections. And that might be with a therapist or a coach just to kind of process this a little bit and learn how to manage this regulation personally. And beyond that, you know, when it comes to you know, sort of organizational development, the next most important thing, in my opinion, is to find other people who are doing that really well. Those are your leaders when it comes to creating a, a workforce and a workplace that reinforces psychological safety. I think historically, back to the sort of top-down command and control model, historically what organizations have done is that they've promoted who? Those oftentimes who've been in the seat the longest, who might have the most, say, domain expertise. You know, if we're talking about engineering or manufacturing, these are the people who know a lot about the discipline. And I'm here to say that that doesn't necessarily make them a good leader. Of course, we, we've learned this through Daniel Goldman's work with um, EIQ, emotional intelligence, that uh, it's less about, you know, an individual's domain expertise. While that's very important, that in itself, in and of itself, does not necessarily make them a great leader. We have to look at what is required to lead people today. And Daniel Goldman and, and proponents of emotional intelligence uh, would say, and, and uh, as well, Amy Edmondson would probably agree, and other organizational leaders would agree that, you know, the uh, attribute of self-awareness is essential. Uh, emotional intelligence begins with awareness of what's going on with me, uh, how is my heating and cooling system, so to speak, functioning right now? And what do I do when I notice that it's a little bit overstressed? And how do I bring myself back into balance? Uh, and then how do I connect with other people and recognize that in other people and create a place where, you know, we can talk about how they're doing? So, um, you know, that that is so important that leaders themselves are personally committed to their own sense of self-regulation, number one. Number two, that they then recognize that in others and understand that there may be others who are in the organization who are not currently operating in supervisory or leadership or managerial level positions who have tremendous potential to uh, help others learn how to uh, regulate their own emotions in the workplace. And, what do, how do we know that a person is effective in their self-regulation? We know they're effective because they're able to, in effect, hold space with another person who might be feeling a certain amount of distress, and they can create that kind of environment where that individual feels relaxed and comfortable in sharing what's going on in their life. You know, it's it's a little bit like a client-therapist relationship. It's like, you know, it it's okay. In order to do that well, you have to be able to be aware of and in touch with how you do that yourself. Because if you're familiar with that and you're aware of that and you're doing that well yourself, you're going to model that for other people. They're going to connect with that. And now you've got, uh, you know, a group of involving two people and leaders want to expand that, you know, 
anybody who's doing that and doing that well and doing that maybe with somebody else, give them an assignment. Now they got a little team of three or four people. Now they're beginning to create a highly productive, highly engaged team of uh, staff who would say, I feel psychologically safe, so to speak, in the work that I do because the person who's leading this team has created an environment where I feel free to uh, not say whatever's on my mind and just come in and, you know, be however I feel today, right? Because we have some, we have some discipline around that. But moreover, I, I have a place where I can come and I can share my ideas. I can en engage in higher level thinking and creativity. I can maybe challenge, you know, an idea. In fact, I'm being asked to challenge the idea. In this environment, um, people are able to bring their whole self into that workplace and into the workplace environment. Remember what I said earlier about when we're under stress, whether that's due to an external or internal stressor, uh, we're, our brain is sort of in the fight, flight, freeze, let's protect ourselves at all costs right now mode. And that comes at the cost of what? Shutting down that higher level thinking that we do when we're feeling relaxed. And so if you think about that in terms of psychological safety, um, we're losing the ca capacity of the individuals to bring that kind of thinking into play because they're worried and stressed about how they're gonna be perceived and what's gonna happen next. So we wanna create an environment where people are able to relax and they're able to bring their whole self to that situation. And I think, you know, raising up individuals who are already demonstrating that to perhaps in some way continue to uh, invite other people to participate in uh, these work efforts uh, and then further expand from there, uh, whether that's two or three or 300, you know, you're, you're kind of building out the team from the inside out and then Beyond that, I think to kind of get to what else an organization can do, I think that it's about um, using the resources that are so available to organizations today, which might include an employee assistance program, of which there are many who are doing lots of wonderful creative things to leverage technology to engage people um, wherever they might be at home, at work. Uh, and I think part of that too includes media. You know, how do we use media today to uh, reach people and engage people right where they live, uh, whether that's in the workplace, on the road, at home, uh, through mobile devices, uh, brief videos, uh, interactive engagement media that really reinforces and teaches about a lot of the concepts that I've been sharing with you today in a way that is actionable for that individual, that is actionable for that leader. You know, give me a three minute video on how I can help defuse the anger that employees might be experiencing or that individual's experiencing. How do I do that? You know, break it down for me, help me get that, that skill in place. You know, how do I regulate my own emotions? Break it down for me and help me understand how to do that. This is the kind of teaching that we need to be doing at the organizational level, whether it's you know an individual, a group, or a team, and uh, it, it is a multidisciplinary effort that involves um, people with different disciplines, different resources. It involves technology. It involves creativity, uh, and you know podcasts like these. So, you know that's that's kind of an overview, I think, of what of 
where we need to go to reinforce and further develop the sense of psychological safety in the workplace and everywhere for that matter. Well, I happen to know of a really interesting organization that offers well-being media. I don't know if you've heard of them, Miles. You know, wildlife media by any chance? (laughs) Uh, Yep. Yep. Happy to bring what we have. Yeah. 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 Uh, There are so many interesting pieces to what you said, Lyle, but, you know, I'm thinking, you're thinking of it through like a EAP clinical um, kind of employee support. And I'm trying to Mm -hmm. think about what you're saying through like this social learning um, lens. And so I'm hearing a lot, which was interesting to me because we didn't really prompt you to talk about it, but you kept saying like, you want to learn from others. And even though at first I was like, oh, this sounds like a very individualized process, you know, kind of taking it in Mm -hmm. and being able to self-regulate. It was interesting that you said, well, but learn how to do that from other people and uh, promote the people who know how to self-regulate so they can help their group. And I just thought that was so interesting. And then you tied it back to, you know, strategy and the higher order thinking. And to us, you know, that's the ultimate goal of learning something, right? Like you're not learning to stuff a bunch of knowledge in your brain. You're learning so you can make good decisions and good choices and make good strategies. And so I, I just found that really interesting. I guess that's just a little side note. Um, and also I have sure. Rocio who I've like totally, Rocio has been sitting here in the wings for those of you who are just listening. I don't know, Rocio, <laughs> do you have any questions? No, I, I, I feel I like um, monopolized this time. <laughs> I have, I have learned a lot about myself. Like he's like talking and I'm like picking up on things and, uh, you know, the whole, uh, flight or fight and how we react to things and all of that. And the bank, the story about the bank, um, and you're not the only one, Nicole. The whole time uh, Lyle is talking, I'm like, oh, wait, but we do this and we do this and trying to relate <laughs> it to like social learning and social learning networks. Yeah. And, you know, how to in- integrate this in, in the workplace and um, in learning and development, which is what we really do. Um, and psychological safety is a big part of that. So I have like all these like yeah. topics going through my mind that we can, you know, explore. Um, but... I think one of the parts that stuck out to me the most was when you were telling the story about the bank and, you know, the flight or um, fight and how we react to things. And that was just one story. But we have all these other stresses happening at the same time. And we're having all these reactions at the same time. So that kind of, you know, I know it happens. I thought about it that way, right? Like, and then you add the global community, everything that's going on right now politically and uh, all over the world. Yeah, no wonder everybody's just on edge all the time. Well, you know, well said, Josie. And I, and I think that, uh, and let's add to that, like that picture you just painted, right, of, of people who are so um, impacted and, mm-hmm. and now they're connected, like on a really large level and personally as well, because social media supports that personal engagement feeds and posts and that kind of thing. And we've got, you know, an exponentially greater number of people now engaging in our personal lives with a lot of feeling-based ideas and thoughts that can be very activating for all those, everybody that's involved in that. And if everybody involved in that isn't understanding what we all just talked about just now in terms of how we regulate and and activate that kind of thing and instead it's kind of operating with a mandate that somehow it's okay and good 
and not only okay and good, but necessary for me to put forth what I feel about this particular situation, regardless of how that's going to impact other people. You have this sort of free-for-all with emotions and feelings just flying all over the place that is then uh, that, that environment with all that stimuli, all that emotional stimuli is now activating everybody you know this is sort of like atoms you know and and bouncing off one another and escalating these situations uh and somehow you know we think that um if we just do a little bit more of that or engage in that a little bit more that we're going to kind of get to a place where i'm going to feel better about that and i have to spend a whole lot of time effort and energy kind of working to sort of recover yeah. in this process that's highly unreliable in that regard right you know and and i think that and now imagine that happening you know for our young kids who haven't even really developed yet and they're having to manage that so you know again while there's a lot of uh, value in technology and connectivity and in fact, remember what we talked about earlier. This is the this is the amazing thing. This is the irony, the paradox of it all, in a way, right? Because where do we when do we experience oxytocin, which is considered to be sort of uh, sometimes referred to as kind of you know the love hormone, right? It's yeah. it's that hormone that feels so good, you know, at certain points of interaction with our spouse or family member or loved one or infant even, you know, looking in mom's eyes and that connection right there mm -hmm. is thought to in and of itself produce oxytocin in, in both um, of those folks and mom and baby. And it's so energizing and enlivening and it's so good. So I, it's understandable how people kind of get confused by this because we think of social media as a place where we're going to connect and we're going to experience that positive interaction, right? And then on the other hand, it's it's such a hotbed of you no know, unrest and discontent and distress. And so, again, I guess I would say that there's there's much to be learned from just understanding how we're wired neurobiologically and to be able to begin to recognize when we're out of balance and what we need to do to get in balance. And the reality of that is that we actually can do that ourselves once we learn how to do that. And then we can make better decisions about how to engage in these social networks around us. How do we engage with others at work? But we really got to start with ourselves. And I think the good news is, is that, you know, from our perspective that, you know, more people are using counseling services today yeah. and mental health services than ever before. And I will tell you as a person who runs, operates a private practice, that probably 90% of the work we do here is helping people learn about these things we talked about today. Yeah. How, do I how do I learn to regulate my dysregulation and kind of get back to a kind of even keel here and, and feel more relaxed? Yeah. It I every I think every podcast episode and every time we have a meeting, I always end up talking about technology and how it drives yeah. us further to be yeah. more mm -hmm. individualistic. Even though we think we're being part of a collective environment, yeah. we're not really. Um, so 
for me, that was also an interesting conversation, um, this idea that we're being connected, but we're really not, and we're just being pushed to do things on our own. Yeah. Um, and even the idea of technology and how, you know, what we were talking about, this idea of just saying whatever you feel whenever you feel like it, right. not caring about what other people think, it it increases behind a computer screen, right? Like there's things that people yeah, say yeah. online that are never good. They're not going to tell it to your face sometimes, you know? Right. Um, right. So that idea of psychological safety kind of like disappears when we're talking about yeah. the internet and social media yeah. and all those things. Unless, of course, you're talking about a social learning network. Yes. Right? Your idea. <laughs> because then Rocio went and wrote a whole article about how she loves yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, uh, Nicole has proposed I, this idea of writing a blog post related to this, you know, technology, mm-hmm. this isolating. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's not human. I don't, I don't think it's human nature to do things on our own. I think from the beginning everything has been done with other people collectively. Yeah. Everybody right. has a task. Everybody helps each other. We solve problems together. Um, it's really hard to help the individual by themselves. There's too many people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we are connected by our very nature, you know, and that's, uh, that's part of our DNA is to be connected. And, yeah. um, and then learning again, like you say, learning how to navigate that, you know, with, with technology and yeah. and it would seem you know that that would actually support that and it can uh but it can also work against that you know and, and i think it does come down to the leadership like understanding yeah. uh what it is that what would be the elements of of a good social learning environment mm-hmm. and and how do we then you know allow for that or provide for that yeah all the elements you have mentioned in this talk like literally everything that you have said is what we talk about when we talk about social learning networks and okay. setting up an yeah. environment where people feel safe and yeah. Um, yeah. to voice their opinions. Um, but mm-hmm. maybe we got something. This, right this has been very <laughs> no. This has been a very enlightening conversation. So I'm glad I I've made Good. it today. <laughs> Good. Good. I hope it well, is for others as well. Yeah. Yeah. I am sure it will be. Lyle, we have taken you literally to the last minute of promised time. So I want to make sure we don't hold you up too much. But if people want to learn more about you and uh, your work, where can they find you? Sure. Uh, Amplifemedia.com is where you will find a lot of media that we are writing and producing. And a, a real credit and thanks to Nicole and her team for being so instrumental in helping us get started mm-hmm. in learning how to you know take domain expertise and put it into content that is uh, engaging uh, accessible and so that's what we're about at amplifemedia.com uh, think of it as kind of well-being comes to Netflix so to speak and in other words you can uh, simply uh, subscribe to our portal and have access to all kinds of informational videos and interactive engagement uh, tools that can be used to help people learn about the things that we talked about today and really reinforce your own efforts to develop psychological safety at home, in the workplace, in whatever group or organization you might be working within. So uh, we'd love to have you visit us. Feel free to um, reach out to 
uh, Amplified Life at any time. And um, I can also give you a phone number if I can add that to our, our notice here. That's uh, reach me at 616-239-2446. 616-239-2446. Love to talk with you and help in any way that we can. And I can say from having seen it firsthand, it really is great stuff. It's very applicable. It's not like high level theory. It really is actionable and uh, it is mobile responsive. So you could take it kind of wherever you are, which I think is great. And um, like I said, very applicable, very engaging, really not just like learn about stuff, but like apply these concepts to your life, which I think is the meaning of learning again. So Lyle, thank you again so much for being a guest and Rocio for co-hosting this awesome episode with me. Um, You, we will tell you a little bit about your experiment in just a minute after the recap. So thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Reflecting on our deep dive into the true meaning of psychological safety. Let's summarize the key takeaways. First, Company leaders are responsible for developing and implementing a culture of psychological safety. Second, it is important to recognize and understand emotions as signals rather than allowing them to dictate decision-making. Third, the power of community support cannot be overlooked. Just as teaching enhances memory, sharing experiences and challenges with peers can strengthen the fabric of psychological safety. Now, it's your turn to apply this insight. For your experiment this week, begin by reflecting on your workplace environment. Consider instances where team members may have felt hesitant to voice their opinions or ideas. Reflect on any recent situations where misunderstandings occurred due to a lack of open communication. Write down your observations. Then, hypothesize ways to change the outcome. How can the environment change where team members feel safe to voice their opinions, ideas, and concerns without fear of reprisal or judgment? Can training programs be implemented to enhance communication skills, active listening, and empathy among team members and leaders? What actions can leaders take to demonstrate their commitment to open communication and psychological safety? We invite you to continue the conversation and share your discoveries and strategies with our community at the Social Learning Lab on Facebook. Once again, thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give us a review, like, subscribe, and share it so that we can continue to build a supportive group of social learning enthusiasts. Until next time, keep making learning that matters.